Good morning, good evening, good whatever time it is from wherever you are listening to this recording. This is Brandon with 238 Media. I am here again with our wonderful installment series that we have been moving through. The polemic against the man Praxius. And we will be picking up with this chapter today, which is entitled The Natural Invisibility of the Father and the Visibility of the Son Witnessed in Many Passages of the Old Testament. Arguments of their distinctiveness thus supplied. So let somebody know we are picking up and we're ready to go. All right. The first quote that we have already at the first portion that we're going to look at today is going to come from the first line, which says, moreover, there comes to our aid when we insist upon the father and the son as being two, that regulating principle, which has determined God to be invisible. Now notice here, he doesn't quite make it clear uh, what being two is. I would presuppose that from his previous writing, he is alluding to their one in essence. Uh, but just a little interesting thing to notice when Moses in Egypt desired to see the face of the Lord saying, if therefore I have found grace in thy sight, manifest thyself unto me that I may see thee and know thee. God said, thou canst not see my face for there shall no man see me and live. In other words, he who sees me shall die. Now we find that God has been seen by many persons and yet that no one who saw him died at his sight. So this is the first line of argumentation that our friend Tertullian is uh, building his uh, predisclosed argument from the chapter title uh, that we find that nobody who can see God can live, but there are those who saw God. So he's showing what he appears to be a discontinue, uh, discontinue, excuse me, discontinuity in the um, text as it relates to what we understand. The truth is they saw God according to the faculties of men, right? But not in accordance with the full glory of the Godhead, which from a oneness standpoint, I don't see how we would have a problem with that because we technically believe that these are manifestations and in the full glory, we, I don't know if anybody can say they have seen them. For the patriarchs have said to have seen God as Abraham and Jacob. And he's referencing the Genesis of counts or the Genesis account. I'm, I'm thinking with Abraham specifically in Genesis 18 on the plain of Mamre. And uh, with Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel and the prophets and for instance, Isaiah and Ezekiel and with Isaiah, more than likely he is referring to Isaiah's uh, temple vision where he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Uh, and it's interesting enough to make it clear that it's in John that he actually says this glory that he saw was Christ's glory. Interesting enough. And Ezekiel, uh, as we would say, uh, he was a wheel in the middle of a wheel. Uh, so he's talking about these visions of God. And yet they did not die. So he's creating tension between the biblical narrative and the principles uh, that we understand as it relates to God's discernibility. Either then they ought to have died since they have seen him for the sentence runs. Now notice he's quoting, no man shall see God and live or else if they saw God and yet did not die, 
the scripture is false in stating that God said, if any man shall see my face, he shall not live. So notice he's trying to get the scriptures to argue against the scriptures, right? Well, either God's lying or they did see him. And so, of course, who in their right mind would go and say, oh, God is lying? Who would say that? So notice these these false equivocations and these, these, these straw men he's building. This is why, for me personally, it makes it very hard to take Tertullian very seriously. Uh, because it, I, I just wonder, it's like, mm, who would build an argument so feeble? Either way, the scripture, uh, as he says, either way, the scripture misleads us when it makes God invisible and when it produces him to our sights. So you, you see how he's trying to pivot. This is why it's always dangerous to presuppose what a person believes from one side of the argument. Now then, we must be a different being who was seen. Because of one who was seen, it could not be predicated that he is invisible. It will therefore follow that by him who is invisible, we must understand the father in the fullness of his majesty. While we recognize the son as visible by reason of his dis of the dispensation of his derived existence. Even Let's go back here. Even as it is not permitted us to contemplate the sun and the full amount of his substance, which is in the heavens, but we can only endure with our eyes a ray by reason of the tempered condition of this portion, which is projected from him to the earth. Now, this is a very odd example that he is using because I believe it's a uh, Hippolytus, I believe, if I'm not getting uh, Hippolytus, if I'm not getting mixed up who, uh, and against all heresies in his description of Sibelius, this uh, was a, a, an analogy that he alleges Sibelius used to explain the nature of God, that Jesus is in the emanation of the visible representation of the true God. Uh, so this is very interesting to me, which from what I understand, this analogy of the sun is really more of an Aristotelian thing uh, per se, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, so he goes on further to say, uh, here, someone on the other side may be disposed to contend. Now, he's he is supposedly uh, bringing up this hypothetical argumentation to contend that the son is also invisible as being the word and as being also spirit. And while claiming one nature for the father and the son to affirm that the father is rather one and the same person with the son. But the scripture, as we have said, maintains their difference by distinction it makes. So. The argument that he is probably maybe have modified that they, the early Sabellian modalists uh, in this era were alleging that they are of the same substance. Now, if this is very interesting, this description of being probably what we would call homoousius, uh, because being homoousius was a buzzword, right? So I wish I had the Greek translation or the translation from Sibelius uh, that really uh comments on this so I can look at the language and see what word did he actually use because homoousius was a buzzword for the more the modalistic oneness believers of this time. And th this description seems to be very homoousius in its description, but he's fixing to go and make the distinction based upon a, a variable that's interesting that he is between the visible and the invisible. So further on, Tertullian is now going to build the argument that the difference between the two is the fact that one is visible and that the other is invisible, right? Now, this is very interesting uh, to note or to see him. And we're going to actually look at another quote from another source to, to really weigh this. They then go on to argue to this effect that if it was the son who then spoke to Moses, 
he must mean it of himself that his face was visible to no one because he was himself indeed the invisible father in the name of the son. It sounds like he's talking about Exodus 3 when the Lord appeared to Moses in the form of a theophany uh, in the burning bush. And what's interesting, the angel that manifested uh, in the voice seems to be described as something a little bit different from the way that I read it. Or, and I was reading Daniel Boyarn's book, um, The Bodies of God. There is a Middle Eastern concept called the fluidity model, where uh, there is this concept of almost kind of like where we would say, how can you say this? Where God's consciousness was overlapping, if you will. Uh, there is this overlapping sense of consciousness where the Lord could assume the conscious uh, faculties of a an angel and speak through them, <coughs> excuse me, as if they were himself. Now, this is quite fascinating uh, because this usually is a very big argument, but I'm not going to get off topic. Uh, and so they then go on to argue to this effect that if it was a son who then spoke to Moses, he must mean it of himself that his face was visible to no one because he was himself indeed the invisible father in the name of the son. And by this means they will have it that the visible and the invisible are one and the same, just as the father and the son are the same. And this they maintain because in a preceding passage, before he had refused the sight of his face, Moses' scripture informs us that the Lord spake face to face with Moses, even as a man speaketh unto his friend, just as Jacob also says, I have seen God face to face. Now notice how he is, uh, how he is imploring these, uh, the context of what took place to Jacob with Moses. It is quite possible that Moses saw an image or a visage, but he did not quite see his face as to reason why that he saw asked to see his face later on. It is possible to talk to a person and then to be talking to you face to face and not be able to discern quite clearly. I believe a little bit later on, he's going to actually use the example of us looking through a glass darkly, which is interesting because that will qualify speaking face to face without having absolute discernibility of the one you're speaking to from a visual perspective. Therefore, the visible and the invisible are one and the same and both being thus the same. It follows that he is invisible as the father, invisible as the son. As if the scripture, according to our exposition of it, were inapplicable to the son when the father is set aside in his own invisibility. Now, notice this. The father set aside in his own invisibility. What does that mean? He is refuting the fact that this is something that he is engineering into the context of his argument. We declare, however, that the son also considered himself as a son is invisible and that he is God and that the word and the spirit of God, but that he was visible before the days of his flesh. In the way that he says to Aaron and Miriam, if there shall be a prophet among you, I will make known to him in a vision. I will speak to him in a dream, not as Moses, whom I shall speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, that is to say in truth and not enigmatically. That is to say in an image as the apostle also expresses it. Now we see through a glass darkly or in or enigmatic in tongue tie enigmatically, but then face to face. Now, what's interesting to this is that I guess I don't I don't want to say he's presupposing that this is Christ speaking, but I just want you to notice how much Tertullian really, really uh, injects what he thinks a person should be saying. 
Since, therefore, he reserves to some further time his presence and speech face to face with Moses, a promise which was afterwards fulfilled in the retirement of the Mount of Transfiguration. When, as we read in the gospel, Moses appeared talking with Jesus, it is evident that in early times it was always in a glass, as it were, and an enigma in vision and dream that God, I mean the Son of God, appeared to the prophets and patriarchs, as also to Moses indeed himself. So it seems, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure people in the comments will let me know, but it seems as if almost Tertullian is saying that because of the transfiguration, that this is further evidence uh, that this was the son speaking in the Old Testament. From a oneness viewpoint, we would agree. What do you mean? We're saying that it was the son that spoke, but it was the one who would become the son who was speaking to Moses, who was incarnate in Christ. So either way you go, uh, it's a problem. But I think this is weak argumentation on the first grounds would be in Hebrews 1, and I'm just giving my scriptural commentary, it says, after God spake long ago in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets in these last days, he has spoken to us in a son. Now notice, the speaking to us in a son is unique to when? The last days. Further proof of this is Hosea 12, 9 through 10, where we have the Lord God saying that I alone spoke to the prophets, that I am the one who spoke in Deuteronomy 4 and 12 makes this very clear. We're going to turn to that and just see what the Old Testament witness is of the one who spoke to them in times long ago. Let's see here. Deuteronomy 4 and 2. Uh, let's start with verse 1. Now, Israel, pay attention to the statement and ordinances I am about to teach you, so that you may live and go on to enter and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Notice singular. Do not add to a thing what I command you, nor subtract from it, so that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I am delivering to you when you have witnessed what the Lord did to Baal Peor, how he eradicated from your midst everyone who followed Baal Peor. But you remain faithful to the Lord your God, are still alive to this very day, every one of you. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances just as the Lord, my God, told me. Now notice, this is Moses beginning to speak. Look, I am telling you ordinances just as the Lord, my God. Who is that? That is the one who spoke to Moses in that time period. Now, in fact, Hebrews tells us that it was the father who spoke to the prophet. So already Tertullian has gone outside of the bounds of what the scriptures teaches. And if the Lord did possibly speak with him face to face, yet it was not a man that he uh, could behold his face unless indeed it was in a glass, as it were, by enigma. Besides, if the Lord so spoke with Moses, then Moses actually discerned his face eye to eye. How comes it to pass that immediately afterward on the same occasion, he desires to see his face, which he ought not to have desired because he had already seen. And I think I covered that a little bit earlier. And how, in like manner, does the Lord also say that his face cannot be seen because he had shown it, if indeed he really had, as our opponents, uh, and it's reason, opponents suppose. Or what is that face of God, the sight of which is refused if there was one which was visible to man? I have seen God, says Jacob, face to face, and my life is preserved. There ought to be some other face which kills if it be only seen. 
Well, then, was the son visible? Certainly not. Although he was the face of God, except only in a vision and a dream and in a glass and in an enigma, because the word and the spirit of God cannot be seen except in an imaginary form. But they say he calls invisible father his face. For who is the father? Must he not be the face of the son by reason of that authority which he obtains as the begotten of the father? For if they're not a natural property in saying of some person is greater than yourself, that man is my face. He gives me his countenance. My father says Christ is greater than thine. Therefore, the father must be the son, the face of the son. For what does the scripture say? The spirit of his person is Christ. And therefore, Christ is the spirit of the father's person. There is good reason why in virtue indeed of the unity, the spirit of him to whose person he belonged, that is to say, the father pronounced him to be his face. Now, this, to be sure, is an astounding thing that the father can be taken to be the face of the son when he is his head for the head of Christ is God. Now, this is fascinating looking at this argumentation. And before I, I, I end our session today, I was reading a little bit of the writings of uh, Ignatius of Antioch as it relates to a distinction of visibility and invisible. Uh, and I just think it's it's very interesting to note here uh, some of the earlier, even thoughts that were uh, earlier than Tertullian, uh, how they understood Jesus and how they understood uh, his manifestation. And this is from uh, Trail Point Nine. Uh, let's see. He he says the core of this thought that we're going to see is going to be the divine economy in the universe. And so he manifested himself in Jesus Christ, his son, who is his word proceeding from silence and who in all things was pleasing to him, who sent him. Our God, Jesus, the Christ was born of Mary, of the seed of David and of the Holy Spirit. He was truly crucified and was truly raised from the dead when his father raised him. Uh, here is another uh, quotation. Let's see here that uh, Ignatius says that he who was invisible became visible for our sake. So if the difference is just simply visible and invisible, I think we may have some contradictions with the earlier writings. I think Tertullian is trying to make what he thinks is a very good argument, but I think at best, uh, to be honest, I have heard some Trinitarian apologists try to use this approach, but most that I know that really are well-versed in the scriptures wouldn't retreat to uh, such means. But hey, next time we're going to be picking up the next chapter, which is going to be the New Testament passage quoted. They attest the same truth of the son's visibility contrasted with the father's invisibility. So we're going to have a continuation of this current conversation. Hey, let somebody know we got a good podcast going on uh, and they can also view it on YouTube. And as always, it is the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. The Lord bless you in Jesus' mighty name.